Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. This special episode brings you the stories of four saints of Washington, D.C., saints who were sinners too, people who lived faithfully in their own time and place. The names George Washington, Carter G. Woodson, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and Marie H. Reed may be familiar or unknown. But because of their vibrant, embodied witness, the city of Washington and the surrounding communities of Northern Virginia and Maryland were changed forever. Washington, D.C., home of democracy, freedom. It's also been home to four people I'll call saints, George, Carter, Joan, and Marie. Now, I use the word saint generously, and I hope any Catholic and Orthodox friends will indulge me. I was raised with the idea that America has always been a bastion of religious freedom. In the version I learned in school, the pilgrims came to America aboard the Mayflower, the Puritans soon followed, and then wave upon wave of other believers arrived, all mixing into a welcome melting pot where they enjoyed unbounded religious freedom. But as in most histories, the real situation was a bit more complicated. While the vast majority of early Americans were Christian, the pitched battles between Protestant sects and more explosively between Protestants and Catholics were intense. Virtually every colony had its own established religion, and its ministers were political appointees. In Virginia, taxes were levied on all Virginians to support the state Anglican Church persecuted Virginia Baptists risked arrest for not attending Anglican services. Maryland, though founded by Catholic Lord Baltimore in 1634, became officially Anglican. Catholics were then not able to worship openly or participate in government. For any indigenous people who still lived in what is now the Washington area, which is the ancestral land of the Anacostans, Piscataway, and Pamunkey peoples, you can be sure that their religious traditions were valued not at all. Jews and Quakers, Methodists, and others didn't have an easy time of it either. Into the fray stepped the ones we call the Founding Fathers, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, and the rest. The men who fought the revolution, a war against a country in which the head of the state was the head of the state church, also understood the risks of sectarian conflict, and they saw a need to secure a republic that upheld religious freedom. 
Thomas Jefferson's Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom became a law, quote, meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew, the Gentile, the Christian, and the Mohammedan, the Hindu, and infidel of every denomination. As president, Washington wrote in 1790, all possess alike liberty of conscience and immunity of citizenship. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. But was George Washington a saint? Though George Washington was an Anglican and served as a vestryman and church warden, he was private about his personal religious beliefs. Washington led services for troops when they lacked chaplains. Often when he was traveling, he would stop for services at whatever church was nearby, worshiping with Presbyterians, Quakers, Roman Catholics, Congregationalists, Baptists, and Dutch Reformed. But George Washington may not fit the profile of this super spiritual saint, and there is the confounding fact that he enslaved other human beings. I think, though, about the words of Simone Weil, who once said this, We must have the saintliness demanded by the present moment. And Washington met the demands of his moment. In 1790, as the new Constitution was finally ratified, George Washington visited the members of America's oldest synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. In historic letter that followed, Washington, to dispel fears of persecution of those of the Jewish faith, made a public commitment to religious freedom that would extend beyond the bounds of Christian denominations. To the Jewish congregation, he writes, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. George Washington was a founding father who held the trust and respect of his fellow citizens. Though we don't envision him with a halo, there's no question that he stood for basic protections that would go on to be established in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. About 100 years later, a mother in Virginia would tell her young son a very different story about George Washington. Anna Eliza Woodson recounted the day when, bound and on her way to be sold at auction, she had passed by Washington's statue in Richmond. 
In this statue, she imagined a Washington calling for more slaves to be sold and sent throughout the young country to make cotton king, and she hated George Washington. Her son, Carter, disagreed. He argued that Washington helped build a system of government that made it possible, eventually, for Abraham Lincoln to help free African Americans from slavery and save the Union. This was Carter G. Woodson, born in 1875 in Appalachian, Virginia, to two illiterate, formerly enslaved people. He was a coal miner who struggled for every advantage he got, who achieved great scholarship, the second Ph.D. from Harvard after W.E.B. Du Bois, who rose to leadership as the pioneer and champion of the modern Black history movement. What was Carter G. Woodson's understanding of Christianity? Carter, one of nine children, grew up in the faith with memories of Saturday nights when his mother washed the clothing he had been wearing so he could don clean clothes to church on Sundays. In his years as a coal miner, he encountered Christians like the white coal miner, a devout Episcopalian who bragged about his participation in the lynching of four blacks in Clifton Forge, Virginia, in 1892. Woodson clearly judged this miner as one of the many Christians who used religion to support oppression. And this personal insight would, in the 1930s, fuel Woodson's relentless attacks on black church leaders with close ties to institutions that promoted segregation, such as the YMCA of the time. He named segregation an evil remnant of slavery, and he called it unchristian. Yet, despite his misgivings about churches run by the wrong people, Woodson remained a Christian, experiencing the legacy of abolitionist Christians of Berea College, serving as a Sunday school teacher and president of the Board of Deacons of a Baptist church. Carter G. Woodson was a saint of a particular kind. Carter G. Woodson was never motivated by aspirations for wealth. He never married, never had children. He was once described as the strange Harvard bachelor whose only true love has been his devotion to historical truth. To one prospective assistant, he remarked, I suppose you have heard, Mr. Green, that I am eccentric declaring that no woman could stand his rigid regimen. In Echoes of the Monastics, he spoke explicitly of his vow of poverty and vow of celibacy. So what was the object of Woodson's all-consuming devotion? As he began his academic career, Woodson had lamented that Americans knew very little about the role of African Americans in their history. And so, in a three-story row house on Ninth Street, Northwest Washington, he made his home and established the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. There, Woodson gave the fullness of himself to the evolution of African American history as an academic field of study, 
a conduit for American educational reform and a vehicle of Black psychological and cultural liberation. Until his death in 1950, generations of scholars would study and strategize alongside this man. The mentor, they said, made it his custom to devote every waking hour to research, writing, and editing. Nothing else mattered. Woodson, unlike most male scholars during this time, welcomed African-American women as equal co-workers and leaders. He facilitated cross-generational dialogues and relationships, not only with young women and men like Langston Hughes, but with black churches, colleges, universities, schools, and community centers all around the country, all to advance the cause of education, knowledge, freedom, and true citizenship for all. In these words of Carter G. Woodson, we sense the soul of a saint. The real servant of the people must live among them, think with them, feel for them, and die for them. If Joan Trumpower's family had known of Carter G. Woodson's Black history, they would have had none of it. Joan Trumpower was born in 1941 to a white family in Washington, D.C., and raised in Arlington, Virginia. Her mother, a segregationist from Georgia, descended from enslavers, was convinced of the superiority of white people over all others. As a little girl, Joan saw the world differently. Later, she would explain simply, In church, we had to memorize Bible verses of how to treat each other like, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and love thy neighbor as thyself. When I got to high school, we had to memorize the Declaration of Independence, which says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. The problem was that we didn't practice what we were being taught. Joan secretly attended racially integrated Bible studies that solidified for her the belief that all people are God's children. Mrs. Trumphauer insisted on Duke University to ensure that her daughter become a proper Southern lady. Joan went, but she skipped out on rushing a sorority a move considered so outlandish that the university sent her to a counselor for a wellness check. Her second semester, she joined the Durham sit-ins, where she was arrested and taken in for psychological evaluation. She ultimately dropped out after Duke's dean of women pressured her to cease her activism. When she was asked why she got involved in the cause of civil rights, she said this, We had to do it. This is like saying, practice what you preach. I felt that it was the honest thing to do. I saw something was wrong, and I decided to do something about it. Joan moved back to the Washington area to join the nonviolent action group based at Howard University. 
Joan Trumpower worked on Capitol Hill and was an organizer of the 1961 Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides through the South were designed to expose Jim Crow, despite federal mandates banning racial segregation on interstate buses, train lines, and in waiting rooms. 19-year-old Joan knew full well that their actions could lead to being assaulted, arrested, or at worst, killed. The Freedom Riders encountered a violent mob in Alabama that bombed their bus. They were arrested in Mississippi. The mugshot of Joan Trumpower features a pretty girl with flowing hair, a gingham dress, and a flower on her lapel, booked for breaching the peace. Trumpower and the other Freedom Riders were imprisoned at Parchman Farm, the Mississippi State Penitentiary, where death row was cleared out to make space for their physical and psychological abuse. But they sang songs, taught each other bits of different languages they knew, and discussed the importance of discipline and nonviolence. Joan had no plans or place to go until the fall, so she opted to serve additional time in Parchman to reduce some of her $200 fine. Each day in prison took $3 off the fine. When Trump Power was released, she enrolled as the first white full-time student at Tougaloo College, an HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. She believed integration must be a two-way street, much to the anger of local segregationists who attempted to have the college shut down. In 1963, Joan joined others at the segregated Woolworth's lunch counter in Jackson. In an iconic photo of the protest, Joan Trumpower sits at the counter, composed in her pressed dress and pearls, alongside other demonstrators, as a group of men pour ketchup, sugar, and mustard over their heads, shouting obscenities. The protesters were cut with broken glass, hit with brass knuckles, and burned with cigarettes. The police stood by while men were kicked and punched and women were yanked from the counter by their hair. They called me race traitor, Joan would remember. And yet, this young woman carried on, part of Freedom Summer in 1964 and the Selma to Montgomery March. In another confrontation, Joan Trumpower was in a car stopped by Klansmen who beat their driver. Joan would say, that night on the road out of Canton, Mississippi, we were all convinced that it was the end. She returned to Northern Virginia, though she'd been disowned by her family. Her mother declared that she had been sucked up into a cult. Joan married Dan Mulholland, and they had five sons. She worked at the Smithsonian Institution, at the Departments of Commerce and Justice, and taught English as a second language at an Arlington Elementary School. Joan is 80 years old now and active through the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation. With a mission to end racism through education, she continues to spread the simple lesson she learned in Sunday school that we are all. God's children.
Marie H. Reed was born in Spotsylvania, Virginia in 1915 and moved to Washington as a child. After graduating from Howard University, she attended seminary in Baltimore and began a career as a minister. In 1948, Reed founded her own congregation called the Sacred Heart Spiritual Church on Seton Street, Northwest Washington, in 1948. She was named supervising bishop of the Mount Canaan Spiritual Conference, made up of 14 churches in D.C. and New York. The area, now called Adams Morgan, comprises several older Washington neighborhoods where back in the 1880s, landowner Mary Foote Henderson purchased land and evicted a large African-American community. The neighborhood, along with the rest of Washington, D.C., remained segregated through the 1950s. Bishop Reed was busy with her pastoral ministry, leading three Sunday services, Wednesday evening Bible class, Friday evening junior class, followed by preaching, healing, and prophecy. Bishop Marie Reed became a powerful force in the civic life of her neighborhood, and her church was a centerpiece of the community, then a low-income, racially mixed area. One reporter described Reed as motherly, informed, cool, and unswervingly devoted to her flock and her block. And there was a great deal to be done. One of Bishop Marie Reed's pet causes was for equal education for all children. In 1954, when the United States Supreme Court handed down the Brown versus Board of Education decision calling for the end of school segregation, the issue came to the fore. At the time, there were two existing neighborhood schools, Thomas P. Morgan, an all-black school, and John Quincy Adams Elementary, an all-white school. During the year of Brown versus Board, a rock-throwing incident between students at Adams and Morgan left one student injured. The neighbors and school principals of both schools were left wondering how to improve the community's atmosphere. As a result, the Adams-Morgan Community Council was formed. It included both white and black residents who sought to create a truly integrated school to provide a quality education, a community school. Bishop Reed was also known for her attempts to bring urban and personal renewal to Adams Morgan residents. She held demonstrations at City Hall to bring the area's housing, education, and health problems to the attention of city government. She helped sponsor programs on rodent control, home repair, home economics, personal hygiene, and speech. She cooked for a community children's breakfast program and planted flowers in a neighborhood beautification drive. In the mid-1960s, an urban renewal plan she'd worked for was defeated. She'd been convinced that it would create safe, affordable housing for the area's poor residents. In a poignant remark, Bishop Reed told the Washington Post, I just lay down and didn't feel like doing anything for two years but she labored on. She served as the first chairman of the Morgan Community School Board. She was active in the Adams-Morgan Planning Council, 
Adams Morgan Community Council. She turned her attention to the old dilapidated Morgan School and campaigned vigorously to have a brand new school built. Bishop Reed died in 1969 at the age of 54. But Morgan School was finally raised in 1972 and a new school was built in its place. Today, the Marie Reed Community Learning Center, renovated just five years ago, includes the elementary school, a daycare, a recreation center, and a health clinic. And so the name Marie Reed endures, a reminder of the unflagging saint of Adams Morgan. George, the visionary, Carter, the historian, Joan, the activist, Marie, the pastor. Each of these sinner saints served and lived and loved their neighbors, the people of their community, the people of the Washington, D.C. area. How are you and I called to live and to love in our own city? and in our own time, faithfully and well. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville, here at the University of Virginia. This special podcast episode is part of our new Saints of the City initiative, launching in Atlanta, Washington, and Northern Virginia, Charlottesville, and Dallas, with more cities to come. Saints of the City seeks to provide a warm environment for people from different ages, faith, and cultural backgrounds, an invitation to connect with others and consider one aspect of spiritual truth or practical wisdom as modeled by a saint from the Christian tradition. We'd love to include you. Learn more at theologicalhorizons.org saints. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons, the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections. Mm-hmm.